Well, today we return to our expositional study of uh, 1 Timothy, and uh, we're also not only doing that, but launching Prayer Week here at College Park Church, which is our annual emphasis of prayer. We've done this now for three years, and uh, we're launching into that uh, week, that special emphasis today. In fact, uh, in the last 24 hours from this very spot right here, um, over 24-hour period, uh, the Bible was read all the way through the New Testament, uh, some of the Old Testament as well. And uh, there were 15-minute increments for people to pray all over this uh, sanctuary. I think probably we logged more prayer hours in the last 24 hours uh, than we do on any Sunday. And I think it's just a great way to start the new year, to say, God, we need you. We need you to help us. We need you to do what only you can do in the midst of our congregation. And so we're launching Prayer Week today. A couple things that we're doing throughout the course of this week that I want to highlight for you. Tomorrow, most of us have the day off. So fathers and sons, we have a prayer time for you at 8 o'clock, 8 to 9.15. And then we're doing a fun 5K run afterwards. It's scheduled to be about 25 degrees tomorrow, so it's just perfect weather for running. So I want you to join us with that. And then Tuesday through Saturday, uh, we're having morning prayer every day, 6.30 to 7.30, right here at the church. And then uh, also noon Noon prayer at the state capitol, noon prayer at beach at the beach in Brookside, and then also our uh, regular global missions prayer the first Friday of the month at uh, 6 o'clock. All of this is to simply help you learn how to put into practice what it means to pray. In fact, our theme for this week is make time to pray. The reality is, I know your life is like mine, it's incredibly busy, a lot of things going on, and that busy can often be the death of prayer. For that matter, if you want to learn how to pray, don't read a book. What you need to do is pray with people who know how to pray. And so we've set up these times for you to come. And I would encourage you just to choose one or two of those prayer times throughout the course of the week and just start the year off right with a renewed focus in prayer. My hope is that you'll come and join us and that God would help you maybe learn how to pray in a new and more significant way as we start 2012. Well, today we pick up, again, our study of 1 Timothy, and we start, uh, again, where we left off in November, that is uh, chapter 2, and we're going to continue through this great book all the way through May, and we've already learned some really important things about this book. What I want to do, though, is just kind of review for you this morning why we're in 1 Timothy right now, and why this is an important book for us to be studying in this particular moment in our church's history. I chose to dig into 1 Timothy because it is one of the few books in the New Testaments that helps us know how to do church. More than any other book in the New Testament, this book helps us with some foundational truths of what it means for us to live out doing life together as a body of believers. The the central verse for, or verses rather, for 1 Timothy are 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 15. Listen. Paul said this, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So the whole reason that Paul writes this book is so that Timothy would know how to behave himself in the household of God. In other words, he would know how to conduct himself as a pastor, how to lead this congregation, how to help them become everything that God had intended for them to be. So this book helps us by giving us instruction regarding what the church of Jesus Christ is to do, how we are to conduct ourselves, what our mission, what our purpose is. And what it does is it provides particular truths and principles and instructions that transcend time and culture. So even though this letter was written in the first century, it still has very applicable ideas, concepts, and foundational truths for us 
in 2012. The aim of this series was to try and help us to get back to some biblical foundations of the church ministry. What does it mean for the church to be the church? And the reason that I wanted to talk about this during this particular season is that I've been around church world long enough to know that whenever a church moves into a new facility like we have, or whenever a church has gone through a significant growth phase, there are always two challenges that a church faces. Think of these as two ditches on either side. On the one side is the ditch where you assume that God is blessing or you assume there's success. Meaning, you see a building and you see newness and you think, wow, God must really be blessing. And very well, he might be. But big buildings don't always indicate that. Any more than big homes mean that you can afford them, right? So the reality is a big building, a nice building, can feel like it's success. And some might assume that, man, we're doing everything that God would want us to be doing. Well, maybe not. So there's a danger of the assumption of success. There's another danger on the other side. And that is a fear of change. So you got one side, the assumption of success. The other is the fear of change. And, and by this I mean that your spiritual life and your experience of God is really conditioned more so than what you would think by the arena or the environment in which you experience God. Think, for instance, of the home church that you grew up in, kind of the environment, what that was like. I remember going back to my home church. I thought the sanctuary was huge, and it was like 16 rows, you know? And it just, but as a kid, it seemed really big and large. And so where you've experienced God becomes really part of your identity and even part of your spiritual story. So when you move into a new space and that environment changes, sometimes it can be a bit disconcerting. Can kind of feel like, boy, I'm not sure how this is all going to feel and how it's going to work out. And so as a result, sometimes you can have this feeling of, man, if this has changed, has everything changed in how I understand church? So there's a danger on this side of the, of the fence of being more fearful than what you should. So when a church moves into a new space and it's in the middle of a growth season, there can be either the error of assumption or the error of misplaced fear. And so what First Timothy does is it helps us to understand the core underlying principles that should define what a church is to be and do. And that's why we're looking at this, this book, to try and remind us what the core of what the church is. What does it mean for us to be the church together, and how should we conduct ourselves? And so even though this book was written so many years ago, it still has some amazingly helpful things in it. Now, it's been a while since we it, it talked about the introduction of this book, so let me just review a few things with you. 1 Timothy is one of three pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. In each case, Paul, the author, wrote to men who were charged with leading particular church congregations that were church plants that the Apostle Paul had established. In Titus's case, he was to um, lead churches on the island of Crete. In Timothy's case, he was sent to a well-established, fairly well-known church in the city of Ephesus. This church at Ephesus, Paul had personally planted and then used it as a ascending church to plant lots of other churches in the region. The reason Paul sends Timothy there is apparently there's some level of false teaching that has been propagated by its eldership and the church is beginning to waver from the core truths that they had been taught. And so Paul sends his most trusted assistant, Timothy, to that church in order to help refute the air and get the church back on track. Uh, You could imagine that if the church at Ephesus had fallen by the wayside in terms of their teaching, then many other churches would have fallen as well. And so this is an urgent matter for Timothy to deal with, and Paul sends this letter to him to help him know how to conduct himself. 
Now, the central theme of the book could be captured in this simple phrase, guard the truth that leads to life. Guard the truth that leads to life. This is the essence of what Paul is telling Timothy in this book. In other words, the church has been given a deposit of truth, and this truth is the truth that leads to life. And therefore, if this is the church's mission in the world to proclaim this truth, then Timothy, at all costs, must guard this truth, because if the church loses this truth, then who will have the truth that leads to life? The answer would be, no one will. And so the calling on Timothy's life as the pastor of this congregation, the reformer in the midst of this church, is to help preserve the truth that's so important and so vital. And... Remarkably so, that's the same truth that we're called to guard in 21st century America, to guard the truth that leads to life. God has put the church in the world. He's put our church in this city. He's put our church in this state and in this country for this season to do what? To guard the truth that leads to life, to proclaim the truth. Because after all, there's no other name given among men in heaven and earth whereby people would be saved, that name being Jesus Christ. There's no other way. And that is the truth that God has given us that must be guarded. Now, we looked at the book beginning in chapter 1. We saw the foundation of it um, in that Paul was addressing some false teaching. And so we started off by showing you how a church gets off track and then how to split a church. And that Paul identifies those things for us. And then he goes right into the beauty of the power of the gospel. So not only is there some problem or some error going on in the church, but... Paul also identifies the beauty of what it means for Jesus Christ to have died for sinners. Two sermons that we talked about were God's grace is greater than your past, and then also you were made to make much of God. And so this contrast between the beauty of the gospel and the error that was being taught in Ephesus is what Paul addresses in the first chapter, and then it concludes with a sober warning to persevere and not make shipwreck of your faith under the title of fight the good fight of faith so that's where we left off in chapter one now chapter two as a whole is essentially a chapter about the practical elements of what the church is to do in living out this gospel through corporate worship and body life In other words, what follows chapter 1 is an outworking of this gospel-saturated life. If Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, and that's the gospel, then how do you live that out? How do you live that out in corporate worship? How do you live that out in terms of what the church, the body, is supposed to do? That's what Paul addresses in chapter 2, talking only about what the church is to do, but also what men are to do, and also what women are to do. It's a very important chapter because it helps the church live out its faith in a very practical and significant way. Central to this gospel-centered drive, coming out of chapter 1, is the idea of prayer. And this morning we're going to talk about Paul's passion for prayer, in that he calls the church to pray for everyone. And so as we launch prayer week this week, I, I want to simply call you to pray more to pray for everyone. I want your your prayer list to be wonderfully expanded. I want to expand the horizons of how you think about who you should pray for and why you should pray for them. So Paul is calling here for big, sweeping, and importantly, other-centered prayers. They are to pray for everyone. So there's three things that Paul identifies here about prayer in the local church. We're going to look at them in this way. The priority of prayer. Secondly, the practice of prayer. 
And then third, the product. So the priority, the practice, and the product. Here's the first one, and that is this idea of the priority of prayer. Verse 1 begins this way. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So Paul begins this chapter and this instruction on worship by identifying the critical importance of prayer in the life and the ministry of the church. And he does this by listing three words that are really important. The words then, the word urge, and the word first. And each of them tells us something of what is on Paul's heart. First, the word then. He starts out, And he says, first of all, then. This word could also be translated as therefore. Now, if you've been around any kind of inductive Bible study method, you know that whenever you see the word therefore, you need to know why it is there for. Meaning you have to look back. So why? what what is he saying that's transitioning into this new theme? If the new theme is prayer, well, what is he... What did he just talk about? Well, what he just talked about was the gospel. Namely, 1 Timothy 1.15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And therefore, in light of this gospel, Paul says, first of all, prayer, supplications, intercessions should be offered for everyone. So what follows in chapter 2 is a product of the right understanding of chapter 1, or the notion of the gospel. The second word is the word urge. Paul is issuing here not a suggestion. This is a command. And candidly, it's a rather strong command. He's listing this idea of prayer not as a suggestion of one of a number of things that the church should do. He's saying, we'll see this in a moment, a high priority, the highest priority of what the church is to do in the context of the world. The Living Bible paraphrases this statement of urge as, here are my directions. So this is more than a suggestion. In fact, what Paul is saying here is in light of the gospel content, this is something the church must do. Must do. So one of the things I want you to take away from today is this, that if you understand the gospel, I mean, if you really understand that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, and if you know that you are a foremost sinner, in other words, you're the biggest sinner that you know, and you get what the gospel is, then the result will be that you will pray big, sweeping, evangelistic, other-centered, externally-based prayers. A church that doesn't understand the gospel doesn't understand the beauty of what it means that Christ came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, will not pray this way. So he says, therefore, and urge. Third, he says, first of all, the text specifically indicates that prayer should be important and it should have a high place of priority in the church. In comparison to other duties, other roles, other obligations, prayer should take a higher priority. What's really interesting is that Paul uses this same word first in 2 Corinthians 8 to describe the Macedonians and the way that they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So the idea is a first of heart commitment, that that you're on board internally, that there's this sense of, yes, I get it and I want this and this is right. And what Paul is urging here, commanding in light of the gospel, is if you really understand the beauty of the gospel, then there will be a direct relationship between your understanding of that gospel and your commitment to pray big, sweeping, externally focused prayers. So when you rank the top priorities of the church, when you rank the top activities of the church, prayer has to be at the top. So let's put all this together. 
just after Paul stopped talking about the beauty of the gospel and the means by which the glory of God is translated into the world, what does he call the church to do? Just after talking about Christ Jesus coming in the world to save sinners, what does he talk about? Does he talk about preaching? Does he talk about the programs? Does he talk about benevolence? No, he talks about prayer. He calls the church to pray. It's not that other things in the church can't be done or that they shouldn't be done. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that prayer is the only thing that we are to do. But what he is saying is that the first thing, the most important thing that we do is to pray. Now, my guess is that doesn't strike you as all that strange because we know this to be true intellectually. The problem is not knowing that prayer is important intellectually. The problem is that for most of us, that's not how we actually live. We know that prayer is important, but the fact of the matter is, is that it doesn't really live out in terms of its importance in our lives. And I think particularly in North American Christianity, in our overly individualistic, activity-oriented, information-loving culture, I don't think that we are naturally inclined to value prayer. Travel around the world, you'll see people who are deeply committed to pray to prayer. And if we're honest, I think that for many of us, prayer is a struggle because it seems as though it is less fulfilling, less impactful, and even less productive as other spiritual activities. Just for instance, think of what would happen in your small group if someone said, hey, let's get together and let's have a Bible study versus let's get together and have a prayer meeting for an hour. Just think of the emotional reaction that you would have inside. To pray together for an hour just doesn't seem all that productive. But to study something, well, that seems like we'd be doing something. And that's just sort of the the Western Americanized version of how we think. Now, when we get in trouble, when we're desperate, oh, sure, then we pray like crazy, right? Because then we run up to a wall. We know we can't do it and we need help. And so we cry out to God for help. But the reality is, is I find very few believers who really know how to pray. And what's worse, I find very few churches who know how to pray. Why is this? What, what is the problem with the American church and prayer? Let me give you a couple of suggestions why I think we're in trouble. First, I think we're in trouble because prayer acknowledges dependency on God, and that is humbling, and frankly, it is uncomfortable. A friend of mine says it this way, prayerlessness is my declaration of independency from God. You are never more independent from God than when you are prayerless. And you are never more dependent on God than when you are before your face praying and seeking Him. So prayer highlights our dependency. And I think we naturally don't like that. Secondly, we are lulled to spiritual sleep in our comfort. Let me speak candidly. Prosperity, blessing, safety, peace, freedom are all great blessings but they can be the death of prayer. It's a sad commentary that our prayer life soars only when we really have needs. For some of you, 2011 was a year of huge needs, and you found your prayer life just soared, and the danger for you is that 2012, if it settles down, that your prayer life will also settle down, and somehow it will return back to some shallow, um, bane, inept, conversation with god in fact sometimes i wonder if god doesn't often send us hard providences because he knows that we pray better when hard things come 
Because you know God's goal is for you to become like Christ, even if you're a bit uncomfortable. And so he knows that there's a direct relationship between your level of comfort or discomfort and your level of praying. So it just makes sense that in order for God to have you pray more, he has to make you more uncomfortable. Some of you, the light bulb just went on. That's why you keep moving and God keeps sending that neighbor to you. They keep following you, right? You, you change a job and you have the same employee, right? You go, how does this happen? The reason is that God knows without that thorn in your flesh, without that issue in your life, your prayer life would go in the tank. So pray and watch God take care of the neighbor, right? So that's what happens. No. The reality is what God wants to do in our lives is he wants us to be a praying people. Another problem is that few people grew up in churches with a vibrant prayer ministry. In most churches, the prayer meeting was the least attended service of the entire week, if there even was one. So the idea of a prayer ministry, what is, let's have a prayer meeting. For many people, that was nothing more than a snooze fest. Or an opportunity just to hear all this long list of everyone's needs. A friend of mine calls it an organ recital to pray for Aunt Millie's liver and kidney and gallbladder and just go over these things over and over and over. In fact, the most dangerous question that could ever be asked in a prayer meeting is, are there any prayer requests? And then the whole thing goes south from there. These people just go on and on and on. And that, that dull, dry, long list is how many people view prayer meetings. doesn't have to be that way. The other thing is that we're more captivated, honestly, with information and learning than we are about prayer. It's sad but true that if I announced today that tonight at 5 o'clock we're going to have an hour prayer meeting, or if I announced that at 5 o'clock we're going to have a study on the end times, the reality is there'd be far more people who would show up if it was a study on the end times than they would for a prayer meeting. And I don't say that to to shame you or to depress you, but just to acknowledge the reality is we're attracted to information, but when it comes to praying and seeking God in prayer, there's something naturally within us that just sort of resists that. And it's important for us to think through, what, what is that? Why is that the case? It's important, I think, for us to heed Paul's command here that the priority of the church needs to be prayer. A church that really understands the transformative power of the gospel and a church that really understands the need in the world will be a praying church. A gospel-saturated, Jesus-loving people will make prayer a priority. And I also think the reverse is also true. If prayer isn't a priority, then I don't care what you say. You're not a Jesus-loving, gospel-saturated group of people. Prayer has to be a priority. It, it, it goes together. Acts 6.4 says that the priority must be the word and prayer. You can't have one without the other. You can have the form of one, but you can't have the reality of the power of God without the word and prayer. So that is the priority of prayer. Here's the second thing. Notice now the practice of prayer. He says, I urge that supplications and prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. Here, Paul now establishes the, the breadth and the depth of the praying that is to take place. He uses four different words for prayer. And he calls on prayers to be offered for everyone. I mean, it's just an enormously wide scope that Paul is calling for. Four different words and a broad scope. What was the impetus for him saying this? Well, many New Testament scholars believe that Paul wrote this because part of the wrong teaching that was being propagated in the Ephesian church was this notion that they were only concerned about their own needs. 
Even this sort of exclusivity, that sort of us for and no more kind of a mentality. You know, their, their theme hymn was, we shall, we shall, we shall not be moved. You know, they just kind of had their own, their own sense of church and what life was going to be. They're only praying for themselves and, and, and maybe even a sense that, that they, they weren't even focused evangelistically outside of the walls of the church or outside of the walls of their little home church, whatever the size was. New Testament scholars think that what Paul was doing here was trying to poke holes in their fortress mentality to get them thinking outside of themselves, to get them thinking more about other people's needs and not just their own. And the effect of this was it showed up in how they prayed. And so, therefore, Paul calls them back to the the heart of what the gospel should do in the life of the church, and that is to create a, a global mindset for evangelism. In fact, look at verse 3. It shows up in the next verse Paul says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So this church was apparently becoming too internally focused and it's amazing how easily this can happen. Churches become internally focused because we can become internally focused. We can become ingrown and self-focused and exclusive A church has to continually work to be externally focused, to be focused about the needs of others. And so Paul commands the church to lead the way in this through their praying. One of the reasons why I love the fact that at Christmas time we do a Christmas offering to give away to foreign missions. And I just have to commend you that the offering to date is just over $650,000 for Pakistan. I just can't believe that that we're able to give away that amount of money to be able to fund an amazing thing that needs to happen in in Pakistan. But what I love is that at year end, when I'm sure you're getting all sorts of requests like I am via email, I don't even know how these people get my emails, right? These organizations are emailing me, asking for contributions, letters that are coming in. Right at year end, instead of talking about that with you, we're saying give money, but we're going to give it away. And I think one of the reasons that that's so wonderful is it helps keep us externally focused. It helps remind us that life is not all about us. Because it's really easy to think about our programs, our needs, our desires. One of the reasons why we have a prayer calendar, by the way, Nate's got a a bunch of them that you could take today on your way out that we gave away a missions conference. If you didn't get one, a way you can flip through about every day of the month and pray for one of our missionaries or one of our strategic partners. And the reason you need to do that is your kids need to know about people in Pakistan. They need to know what's going on in India. They need to have global mindsets or they will think that everything about Christianity is just about them, their needs, and whether or not your dog's not going to be sick anymore. I mean, that's the limitations of what our kids understand about the gospel and the scope of what prayer needs to be. We have not served them well. So Paul calls on us to have a broad-based mentality that prayer then becomes both a thermometer and a thermostat. As a thermometer, prayer can measure our focus and our love for the gospel. It helps us understand where our real priorities are. It helps us know what we really love. Show me your prayer list. I'll show you what's really important to you. It can also become a thermostat in that prayer can actually turn up the heat a bit. It helps us by expanding our view. You start praying for people in Pakistan or India and China. You start praying for our missionaries. I'll guarantee you, you will start loving them and knowing them in new and powerful and significant ways. So Paul lists four different words for prayer. 
uses four words. I think the highlight here, the, the breadth of what he wants to have happen in prayer ministry. The first word is the word supplication. And this word means a cry for help. It means that you know somebody has a need. You know that someone is lacking something, and so you cry out on their behalf. The next word is the word prayers. This is the most general word for prayer. It can be used to describe either the prayer that's offered or even in some cases the location of prayer because those were often so closely linked. And in the New Testament, this particular word is used for prayers offered to God. So while supplication focuses on the need of the person, Paul then uses a word that focuses on God's ability to be God. And and this then leads into the next word, the word intercession, which is a really unusual word. It's used very infrequently in the New Testament. It has the meaning of a formal petition or an appeal. A form of this word is used in Romans 8 for both the Holy Spirit's appeal to the Father... When, when our praying needs to be adjusted, and it's, it is used of Jesus' appeal to the Father in regards to his intercessory ministry. So the idea seems to be that intercessory prayer is some level of formal, authoritative, and bold appeal to a person of great authority. And that person who's doing that appeal is supposed to be you. In other words, you're the person who's been given in the world to take the needs and the requests of other people and you boldly bring them into the presence of a God who you know can change things. And the reason that you are in the world and the reason the church is in the world is to be a conduit for bold, big, sweeping, intercessory prayers as God's people take those requests to the throne of grace and say, God, you know what's going on in Pakistan. You know what's going on in our neighborhood. You know what's going on in our family member's life. And we want you to stop it. And your role is to be an intercessor, to boldly go to that throne of grace and say, God, come and help. So the idea... It's first, supplication, the need, prayer, taking it before God, intercessions, and then there's also thanksgivings. This refers to prayers of gratitude, prayers of thanksgiving, and in many cases it means prayers offered to God in gratitude to Him for His provisions, but here it has a little different nuance. It seems to be more about the people whom God has put in authority, because He says, We are to um, offer these prayers, supplications, intercessions, and thanksgivings for all people and kings and all who are in high positions. In other words, that a part of your prayer life needs to be gratitude expressed to God for the people who he has placed in authority over you. Now hold that thought because we'll come back to it in a moment. When you put all these words together, you get a very clear sense that a gospel-centered church should have a multi-layered, creative, vibrant, and externally focused prayer ministry that takes people's needs, their requests, their burdens, and brings them before the throne of grace. He seems to suggest that there's a really important role for the church in the culture and for the people who are in that church in its culture to be praying for the needs external to the church. He commands this church to pray for everyone. Everyone. So it seems to me that what Paul is driving in here is that there's a role for the church to play in which you demonstrate your understanding of the gospel, your faith in God and His ability to be God, 
and your love for people in your desire and your practice of praying for people. So let me just push on that for a second. So does that fit with your life? Are you known as a person who prays for other people? Are you known as a person in your sphere of influence who is who's interceding for other people on behalf of them? Because you know, if not, you're, you're really missing an amazing opportunity to, to be a beautiful witness for Christ. I don't know about you, but I struggle sometimes in sharing my faith to kind of take that first big step. You know, we're having a normal conversation about life, and then all of a sudden, hey, are you going to hell? You know, that's kind of a big step, isn't it? You know, that's just that's a big step to take. Or maybe another another way to kind of work into that, you know, like the evangelism explosion, um, explosion question, you know, hey, um, if you were to die today and stand before God, he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? That's a good way to do it. But it's still really awkward at times, and it's nerve-wracking, isn't it? I found one really great way to open a door for evangelism is simply to ask somebody how you can pray for them. In fact, I've done it on occasion where I'm having a meal with somebody and the, the waiter, the waitress comes up and before uh, we are pr- going to pray for that meal, I might say something like this to the waiter or waitress. Hey, let's just call her name Sally. Hey, Sally, in just a minute, John and I are going to pray for our meal here and we would love it while we pray for our meal. If there's anything that we could pray for you about while we're praying for our meal. Anything you, anything you want us to pray for? I've never had a waiter or a waitress say, no, get out of here. I've never had anyone be mad. I had people say, no, thank you. But even when they say, no, thank you, they know I care for them. And often they say, actually, yes. I've actually had servers kind of lean up on the table and go, you know, yeah, let me tell you. And I'm like, oh, okay. So he, there's, and, and they'll tell, you start unraveling this, this life story. I had a server one time say, I got this daughter and she's like AWOL, I don't know where she is. And then as you take down that prayer request, you begin praying for it. And over the, not only over the meal, but then also the next time you go back, I've said to the same waitress, hey, how's your daughter doing? Immediately there's a connection for someone to know that you care. And by using prayer, you suddenly open up their heart for the opportunity to show the love of Jesus. Can I just cast even another vision for you? So our church for years has been known as a wonderful proclaimer of the the Bible in an expositional manner. I don't want to ever lose that or detract from that at all. But I would also love to add this component of prayer in the spirit of Acts 6-4, that we're, we're known about the Word and prayer. Imagine with me, what if our monthly prayer meeting called Fresh Encounter was known as a place that when you're really hurting, when you're really in trouble, when you're really sick, you go there because those people will pray for you. Imagine if we were known as the kind of church in this community that when things got really difficult and really dark, that's a place you could go because those people pray, those people seek the Lord. I think that's a witness, that's a testimony, and that's a role for the church and the culture that, frankly, we ought to think about. At 7.15 to 7.45 every Sunday, our elders pray for the morning worship service, and we've decided we're going to open that up now. And if you want to come and pray with our elders, they're going to be here, 7.15 to 7.45 every Sunday. What a great thing to pray with the leaders of our church. You want to know who our elders are? Awesome. Come pray with us. You'll hear our hearts. What if our elders, what if our church, what if you individually were known as a people who really sought the Lord, that people could come to in crisis. And my question that I would just ask you is this. In your sphere of influence, are you known as that kind of person or not? Paul says, first of all, let prayers, supplications, intercessions be offered for all people. And then he says, for kings and all who are in high positions. 
See, what he's calling for here is for us to pray for people who are in positions of authority. Because the Bible tells us, Romans 13, that every person who's an authority figure in your life has been placed there by the authority of a sovereign God. There's not one boss, there's not one president, there's not one mayor, one judge who doesn't have that position because of a God-ordained command. God even gives bad kings, bad leaders, bad bosses, Because his goal is not just to have you be comfortable. His goal is to help you become like Jesus. And Paul says that we're to give thanks for those leaders. About, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, I was spending a day with the Lord just praying over what I should be doing as a pastor and was trying to help my church in Holland be more externally focused. And I came to this passage in 1 Timothy 2, and the Lord put on my heart to begin praying for people in political and elected office. And I was like, what? I mean, it's just a strange thing, but clear enough, there it was in the text. And so I started praying about that. Uh, a week or so later, I think, or maybe it was the same week, I was at a, a banquet for a local rescue mission. I was the speaker, and seated next to me was a, a local state representative who was also there doing a part in the, in the program. And I leaned over to him. His name was Kuypers, last name Kuypers, first name Wayne. I said, Representative Kuypers, my name is Mark. I'm the pastor at Calvary, and the Lord's put this text on my heart about praying for people in elected office And I'm wondering if there's anything that I can pray for you about. And he said, actually, yeah, there is. And he gave me some things to pray about, including some specific requests for his kids. And I wrote down their kids' names, and I wrote down the requests, and I started praying over those things. Six months later, we ran into him again. And I came up to him. I said, hey, Representative Kuypers, I've been praying about this and also for your kids. How's this going and this going and this going? He was shocked that I'd actually been praying for him. And then he said, you know what? We need to have lunch because I need to talk to you. So we had lunch together, began hearing all was going on in his world and his life, and that began a long-term, wonderful friendship as I entered into his world and just simply never asked him for anything. I just prayed for him over and over and over. And when he ran for Senate, the morning of the election, I invited him to come to our church sanctuary, and there on, on our knees in that sanctuary, I prayed, God, I want you to let your will be known today over this man's life. And that began a wonderful ministry and friendship that was birthed in prayer. And I'm just telling you, that's not rocket science. You can do that, not only with elected officials. You can do that with people that you work with, with folks in your neighborhood, with with a person who's in your sphere of influence. Paul says, first of all, let these prayers be offered for everyone, for kings and and those in high positions. But you know what? There's even more here. Because, remember I told you to keep in mind or, or, or lodge that thought about thanksgivings being offered? Paul is suggesting here that you should not only pray for the good kings and the good judges and the good bosses, but it becomes even more meaningful when you know who was the king at the time. When Paul wrote this, Nero was the emperor of Rome. Nero, the famous persecutor of the Christians. So don't miss this. In, in, in the midst of bad rulers, Paul is calling on the church to pray for good rulers and bad rulers. He's even calling on them to be thankful and to bless and to pray for persecuting rulers. How in the world can he call them to do that? Well, because this is what the gospel does. This is the beauty of what the gospel means. Now, what do I mean by the gospel? I mean this, that when we understand that we're sinners and that God forgives us of our sins by receiving Jesus as one's Lord and Savior. And when that happens, the Bible says there's now no condemnation over me. I'm completely forgiven. I'm completely righteous. I I now have a new perspective on life, which includes Romans 8, 
that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. Death can't, angels can't, powers, spiritual warfare, not even death itself can separate me from the love of Christ. In other words, I'm untouchable. You can't, you go ahead, kill me. I'll be with Jesus. Persecute me, no problem. It makes me more like him. Find me, great, it's his money anyways. You can't touch a Christian who understands this perspective. And so the result is when you understand the gospel this way, it means that you can, listen, love people who are really hard. You can even pray for people who are persecutors. You can pray blessing over those who are mean. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. He says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So here's a, here's a hard question. So how does your persecuted prayer list look like? How does your Lord, these, how's your mean person list coming in terms of the people you pray for? Have any mean people that you pray for? And I don't mean you pray like an imprecatory prayer. Break their teeth, oh God. I mean you pray blessing over them. That's in the Bible, by the way. You, you could say that. But you could also pray, Lord, bless them. And I want to say thank you for this mean boss that you've given me. I'm going to say thank you for the strange neighbor. I want to say thank you for the guy who's all about the covenants in the in the neighborhood reporting you behind the scenes I'm not saying anything I'm just saying that we need to move on so do you do you see how the gospel is connected to all of this Knowing that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners transforms how you live right now. Listen to me, it transforms how you pray and who you pray for right now. The gospel creates the drive to pray for people and issues beyond the needs of just your own family, your own problems, and your own church. This is the transformation that the gospel brings. It brings a a perspective that's just so big. So that's the priority. The practice, here's the product. This is just amazing. Verse 2, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Here's here's the, the model of what Paul wants us to be like and what it looks like is in the midst of the storm and the chaos and so many bad things that are happening and all this bad stuff that's going on. Here's this believer who's interceding and praying and pleading with God and they're filled with peace and quietness. The word peace means tranquility. Quietness means calmness. So when the world is panicking and freaking out, this person is calm because they know who's in control. While other people are just tripping out because they see the stock market going up and down and up and down, they're they're grateful they don't live for this world. While the conversation in the culture is more and more shrill and negative and attacking, the believer is kind, is at peace and calm. So you have peace, quiet life, godly. The word means reverence. It means that you're totally consecrated to both God and His will. And then it means that you're dignified in every way. The word dignity denotes solemnness, a serious attitude, behavior that fits with the gospel. It refers to level-headed conduct and a high standard of morality. So you see the sense? It's a sense that, that by virtue of your prayer life, that your, your reputation in the world is that you're not living for this world. Instead, your role is to take the needs of people and bring them before a sovereign king. And as a result, you live in a quiet, peaceful, tranquil, godly, reverent lifestyle. This is so impressive and so needed. 
The question I'd ask you is, what is your reputation where you live? What's your reputation in the neighborhood? What's your reputation at work? What's our reputation in this community? It has to be that we're a praying people. Otherwise, I would say we don't understand the gospel very well. And people notice this. It's really important. At 9-11, when 9-11 happened, we asked a number of our political um, elected officials to come to our church and just to address us during uh, on the Sunday after 9-11 happened. And one, our congressman actually came and, and, and spoke to our congregation. Um, and he told us a story about why he came to our church. It was quite moving. He, he said that, um, well, for years we had, had at our prayer meeting taken little note cards and just sent his office a stack of 50 to 70 note cards and said, hey, Representative Hookstra, just to let you know, we, we appreciate you and we are praying for you. And that's all we said. We just sent those year after year. And when 9-11 happened, all sorts of invitations for him to come and speak at churches or other, other places came in. His assistant was handing him. He told the story to our congregation one after another to him. And then he saw our church's logo and said, wait, that's where I'm going on Sunday. And his assistant said, why? Why are you going there? And he said, because those people pray for me. See, friends, that's the reputation that the church of Jesus Christ needs to have. That in the midst of all the other things that we're involved in, all the really good things that we're involved in, all the really great things that we're doing, that the church needs to be known for its externally focused, gospel-saturated praying. Christianity is not supposed to be some parochial island to itself, being only concerned about our needs. And let me also just tell you that nor are we to be party to the cultural tone that is filled with panic and anger and abusive speech and deceptive practices. 2012 is going to be a really interesting year for our nation economically and politically. I'm not suggesting that you sit on the sidelines. I'm not advocating that you be somehow passive. But I am telling you that the church is supposed to be known more for her praying than her political power. Known more for her godly conduct than her political victories. And I want to call you that in the midst of 2012 to be the kind of person that in the midst of a culture that needs calmness and safety and security, even emotionally, to be the kind of people who offer that by virtue of your desire to intercede on behalf of people in need. I'm calling you as a church today to pray for everyone. I'm asking you to ask God, God, bring people into my path today who I can pray for. I'm calling those of you who have employees over you if it's allowed and somehow figure out how to be able to do it creatively to be able to ask people how can i pray for you and be the kind of person that's known not just for your business acumen or your skills in the bottom line but is known for the reason why you are here in the first place which is to bring people before the throne of grace and to have a heart for people who are outside of the boundaries of the christian faith and say god i want to see these people come to faith in you this year So the gospel frees us to be radically different people. So if you know the gospel and if you love the gospel, then Paul calls us here to live like it and pray like it. Use your safety and freedom that you've been given to boldly take people's needs before the throne of grace, to be external in our thoughts and in our praying. And what I'm inviting you to do today is to start this new year with a new commitment beginning this week to say, God, I want to be a prayer warrior. I want to pray for everyone who doesn't know you. Give me grace and power to do it because this is what you call me to do first of all. Paul says, first of all, then 
I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So pray. Make time and pray. Big, sweeping, evangelistic prayers. Father, we ask you to give us a big heart today for people in our world and in our relational connections who we could intercede for, people who we could have a bigger heart than what we have today. Father, forgive those who have such a small orbit of relationships that they don't know any lost people. And so I pray you'd expand even their vision of why they're on the earth. Or Father, forgive us for our lack of attentiveness to seeking you on behalf of those who need to be saved. College Park, while we're just in a moment of prayer here before we're done, I want to even give you a chance today to respond to this call. And that is this. In a moment, I want to pray for those of you who have particular people on your heart today who are external to the church of Jesus Christ. They they don't know the Lord as their Savior. And you'd love in 2012 for them to come to faith in Christ. Could you imagine them sitting right next to you in this very room singing the same songs? Can you imagine what it would be to have them personally come to faith in Christ? And today I want to call you to boldly bring their name before the throne of grace. And so what we're going to do is we're going to end today. We're going to have just a brief time of prayer for them. Just a few, uh, 30 seconds or so. But in order to pray for them, here's what I want you to do. As their advocate, I want you to stand in a moment and actually say their name out loud. And all over this congregation, people are going to stand and say the name, say the name, say the name of the person who you want God to reach in 2012. And with boldness and with firmness, you declare that person's name in this assembly today. So let's do that together. Let's do it right now. Stand and name their name. Say it out loud. Say it out loud. Anybody else? Stand and say that name. Father, we lift the names of all of these that have been spoken by the mouths of your people at College Park Church, and it is remarkable the number of them. Oh, we we repent of a lack of concern and love for people who are hurtling towards a Christless eternity. We pray that you'd give us bold opportunities to share the love of Christ and at a minimum to simply ask them, how can I pray for you? And through this ministry of prayer that you might open a door for the gospel to be shared. Lord, help us to show the love of Jesus. Help us to show that we know this gospel and we live it by the love that we demonstrate through praying for people who are outside of the body of Christ. So help us today. We need boldness and courage to do simple things like opening our mouth and saying, how can I pray for you? Give us courage. Give us strength. And reach these people who we have named today. And we pray this in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, in his name. All God's people said. Amen. 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 Hey, listen, if you need to pray with someone about something, a person or something going on in your world, our prayer team will be up here at the front. They'd love to be able to pray with you, all right? I love you, College Park. Thanks for coming today. God bless you.